Hello and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the art of singing and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me this evening. It's not unusual for a songwriter's reputation to be superseded by the songs he or she writes and the singers who interpret them. Here's a classic example. Dig, man. There goes Mac the Knife. <laughs> If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly show all about singing. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes. The track we just heard is familiar to millions of people. It was, of course, Louis Armstrong's famous rendition of Mac the Knife, a show tune which was composed in the 1920s by Kurt Weill with lyrics by Bertolt Brecht for their stage work, The Threepenny Opera. Armstrong made the song famous in the 1950s and Mac the Knife became a favourite of countless other vocal artists from cabaret stars like Frank Sinatra, Bobby Darin and Ella Fitzgerald to rockers like Tom Waits and Nick Cave to opera stars like Anne-Sophie von Otter. Mac the Knife is just one of many hit songs composed by Vile. Titles like Pirate Jenny, Alabama Song, Surabaya, Johnny and My Ship have gone on to become a regular part of the repertoire of countless singers. So how did Court Vile, the cool and withdrawn Jewish cantor's son, whose compositional style was influenced by Mozart, Mahler, Schoenberg and Stravinsky, come to make such an impact on so many singers from such a variety of different vocal disciplines? To help us answer this question and many more about the vocal music of Court Vile, I'm excited to be joined in the studio by music scholar Stephen Hinton. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for dropping by. Hello, Chloe. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure. Stephen Hinton is a professor of music at Stanford University and a specialist on Kurt Weill. He has published several studies on the composer and his new book, Weill's Musical Theatre, Stages of Reform. The first musicological study of Kurt Weill's complete stage works is hot off the press. Stephen, Weill was a fan of great singers, wasn't he? You told me that he held them in such such high regard that he thought them even above conductors. What was that about? Well, he did. He thought uh, great singers were rarer than great conductors. And it's reported that once at a rehearsal, when the conductor was uh, being quite abusive towards a wonderful tenor, Weill stopped him in his tracks and said, look, I can replace you, but I can't replace him, referring Ooh. to the tenor. So, yes, he loved beautiful voices, but felt that conductors were to a penny. <laughs> That's a pretty rare view of the world, isn't it? I don't think there are too many composers who would look at singers in that way. Well, they rely on both, but uh, Vial knew that in order for his music to have an impact, it had to be p- performed well. And so he was forever looking for the right singers to work with. 
And he, he not only found them, but he was married to one. Right. And we'll talk about that in a bit. So why do singers of all kinds love Viles' music so much? Well, I think singers of all kinds come into question here because his music operates a rather hybrid area between classical music and popular music. He trained as a classical musician. He knew the whole operatic repertory, but his training was also in the more popular repertory of operetta when he was just 19 years old and worked as a repetiteur in a provincial opera house. When he moved to Berlin and after learning how to compose with such illustrious figures of, as Ferruccio Busoni, he started moving in a more popular direction oh. and appropriated the melodic inventions of jazz music, popular music. And so while he wrote music for particular theatrical shows, he also conceived the music as something that could move beyond the show and be published as sheet music. And he was appealing both to singers who were classically trained, but also appealing to more popular artists. And I think this this tension between the classical and the popular is not just something of his music being available to these people, but it's enshrined in how he conceived of these of these pieces to begin with. Well, when we're talking about the story of how Vile came to be such a force on the international vocal music scene, it seems to all boil down to one incredibly powerful and charismatic character, Lotta Lenya. Lenya is so integrally linked to Vile's success as a songwriter that Louis Armstrong even added a line about her to the lyrics in the version of Mac the Knife we just heard. Other than Bertolt Brecht, Lenya, who was the composer's on-again, off-again wife and the original interpreter of many of his songs, was arguably the biggest influence on Viol's songwriting style. For better and perhaps for worse, Lenya was in all senses Viol's muse. Let's listen to a recording of Lenya's voice now. Here she is in 1930 with the Alabama song from the Mahogany Songspiel. <laughs> This is Voice Box with me, your host, Chloe Veltman, and that was the inimitable Lotte Lenya performing the Alabama song by Kurt Weill from the Mahogany Songspiel. The recording dates from 1930. On tonight's show, I'm joined by Professor Stephen Hinton of Stanford University for a discussion about the songs of Kurt Weill and the singers who've made them famous. Stephen Weill came from a, a very straight-laced religious background. His father was the cantor at a synagogue in Dessau. Lenya, on the other hand, was not only a shiksa, but also basically a street urchin. How did these two very different individuals come together and how would you describe the nature of their connection? They came together... She was a dancer, actually, at the time, working in Berlin. Weyer was collaborating with a playwright called Georg Kaiser, mm. who wrote the libretto to Weyer's first opera, The Protagonist. 
and Vile was going to visit Kaiser, and in order to get to Kaiser's villa, Vile had to go across a lake. Lenya happened to be staying with Kaiser. She knew Kaiser quite well, and Kaiser sort of liked low-life characters. So he sent Lenya in the rowboat to go and pick Vile up, and so when, when, when Vile got into the boat, he realized there was this rather intriguing and beautiful woman in the boat rowing him across, and the rest is a very interesting and colorful history. A number of years ago, uh, there was a book of letters published called Speak Low, which is the title of one of Vile's songs. And it's the letters of Kurt Weill and Lottie Lenya. They wrote a lot to each other because they had all kinds of separations. Uh, they had a marriage separation, in fact. They divorced in the early 30s and remarried when Weill went to the United States as an emigre. But they were still getting along pretty well uh, in 1929, which is when Vile wrote the following in response to a survey that was sent out to a number of famous artists at the time. And they had to respond to the title, My Wife, Meine Frau in German. And this is the translation that's published as the forward to the collection of letters. She is a miserable housewife but a very good actress. Mm. She can't read music, but when she sings, people listen as if it were Caruso. For that matter, I pity any composer whose wife can read music. She doesn't meddle in my work. That is one of her foremost attributes, but she would be very upset if I took no interest in hers. She always has a couple of male friends, which she explains by saying that she doesn't get along with women but perhaps she doesn't get along with women precisely because she always has a couple of male friends. <laughs> she married me because she enjoyed horror, and she claims that this desire has now been fulfilled sufficiently. <laughs> My wife's name is Lottie Lenya. That's very interesting. So that, that was, they, they really depended on each other emotionally. He said at some point, you know Lenya, that you come immediately after my work. <laughs> so first and foremost, he was a creative artist. Mm -hmm. But she was a wonderful artist as well. And after initial career as a dancer, she started singing quite a lot and performing in stage plays as well. And in fact, what we just heard, the Alabama song, was the first work of Viles that she performed in because the person originally cast in the role in the Mahagoni Zongspiel in 1927 was indisposed. And so this was the first time that Vile experimented with non-operatic singers. Hmm. So you described Vile as having a blind spot over Lenya. Tell us about that. Well, the blind spot is really, I think, that he was completely smitten and really wanted to help her to get all kinds of work and really wanted her to perform in as many of his works as he could. So while he tended to draw a pretty hard and fast distinction between, on the one hand, works where, which were written for singers who can act, so essentially opera performers, on the one hand, and on the other, works for actors who can sing. So the Mahagoni opera is really for singers who can act, whereas the Threepenny opera is really for uh, the opposite. Mm -hmm. So actors who can sing, 
Lenya gets plugged in in the Mahagoni Zongspiel as the only actor who can sing as opposed mm -hmm. to a singer who can act. And then later in his career, when he is established on Broadway and produces an operetta called The Firebrand of Florence in 1944, Lenya, because he insists, is cast as the Duchess. And this is really a traditional operetta. It's a remarkable piece, but it, it sounds in, in many ways extremely traditional. So you would expect really a singer who can act in mm. that role rather than vice versa. And Lenya, the critics tended to agree, was miscast, but mm. Vile just couldn't see that. He wouldn't that. hear it, huh? No, he wouldn't. So she she fits both categories in his mind. There's a kind of blind spot. You know, he doesn't want to make the distinction. Well, the music critic Alex Ross has a, a lovely description of Lenya's voice. Um, he calls it famously unpolished, cutting, wearily expressive. Uh, do you agree with this assessment? How would you describe Lenya's singing voice? My first question would be, which one? Aha! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's Lenya's singing voice and there's Lenya's singing voice. The mm -hmm. voice we heard at the beginning was Lenya circa 1930. Mm -hmm. So this was written for a very high tessitura. Mm -hmm. which, she she, which, which she had, as we heard. But over the years, her voice goes down mm -hmm. and it goes down. And so in 1940, she needs to tra transpose vile songs down a little bit to make them comfortable for her voice. And in the 50s and later, they get transposed down even more. So if, if you could read Ross's description again, I think you could hear, you can sort of see that the cutting part might re refer to the early voice. Mm -hmm. But there was an, there was another adjective. The wearily expressive, perhaps. I think the wearily expressive is associated much more with the late Lenya. And perhaps it was always a famously unpolished voice. <laughs> and it it is famously unpolished. The vibrato is more an oscillation of of volume than an oscillation of pitch. And it is quite distinctive, but I think it's been imitated quite a bit as well. Well, let's take a listen now to the evolution of Lenya's voice. We have three versions of the artist performing the famous song Surabaya Johnny from Happy End. The first is from 1929 when Lenya was around 30. The second dates to 1943. And we'll finish up with a version from 1960 when the singer was in her early 60s. Ich war jung, doch erst 16 Jahre. Du kamst von Burma heraus. Du sagtest, ich soll mit dir gehen. Du kämest für alles auf. Ich fragte nach deiner Stellung. Du sagtest, so war ich hier stehen. Du hättest zu tun mit der Eisenbahn. Du hast mich betrogen, Johnny, zur ersten Stunde. Ich hasse dich so, Johnny, wie du da stehst und grinst, Johnny. Nimm die Pfeife aus dem Maul, du Hund. Johnny, warum bist du so Johnny, warum bist du so roh? So 
Versions of Surabaya Johnny from Happy End, a work for the stage by Kurt Weil. Though the voices all sound quite different, they all in fact belong to the same singer, Lotte Lenya, the composer's wife and vocal muse at various stages of her career. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. And please download our free weekly podcasts by visiting voicebox-media.org or iTunes. Stephen Hinton, a Stanford University music scholar specialising in the German composer Kurt Weill, is here with me for a discussion about Weill's vocal music artistry. Stephen, how did Lenya's later singing style come to be considered as the authentic way to sing Weill's songs? I think it's because it's the one that people got to know. The early recordings, the one we heard right at the beginning of the Alabama song, for example, that creates the image of a sort of Louise Brooks character, you know, from the <laughs> playing Lulu. Mm -hmm. This kind of femme fatale who is nonetheless still young and seemingly innocent, but, mm -hmm. but lethal mm -hmm. in a way. The late Lenya isn't that character anymore. She is the world-weary, been there, done that kind of character. And this is the one that gets picked up on the sort of smoky cabaret <laughs> voice because she was recording these works after Vile's death. He died in 1950 uh, after a very intense career. She started a Vile Renaissance and recorded the Berlin songs and also an album of American songs, and this is this is the Lenya that people got to know in the world of recordings. Those early recordings weren't really in circulation anymore, and she influenced a whole host of older singers who adopted this this tone, like Gisela Mai, for example. Some fantastic recordings of her, but it's the lower Lenya, and there are even artists who have the option of singing the untransposed early works, mm -hmm. and they choose to use the transposed versions that the later Lenya used so they, they can they can approximate that that special tone that she had. Will you tell me how these things happen? Have I trusted in love too much? When did the magic vanish? Have I somehow lost my touch? How gay the world could be Could I love you? Could he love me? Love shouldn't be serious, should it? Music scholar Stephen Hinton is here with me, Voicebox host Chloe Veltman, for a chat about the vocal music of Kurt Weill and the many interpreters of his great songs. We just heard Mary Martin singing Foolish Heart from the 1940s musical One Touch of Venus. The song prompts me to dive more deeply into the issue of authenticity in the vocal interpretations of Viles' music. Now, Martin appears on the original cast recording of the work. What's special about the original cast recordings when it comes to exploring the vocal music of Viles, Stephen? Earlier, we talked about how so many different singers, so many different kinds of singers appropriate Viles' music, but there's something particular 
about the cast album because these works were written with the cast in mind. It wasn't uh, the usual separation of composition then realization on stage. The Broadway tradition and the practice of a lot of writing for the stage is that you assemble your cast and although certain numbers may be sketched, the finishing touches and some of the new songs that grow up are very much part of the rehearsal process. So this is an interesting show, 1943, One Touch of Venus, a wartime show about a goddess who is brought to life. She's a, this, the statue who is owned by an art collector, but it's a simple barber who manages to bring her to life and he falls instantly in love with her and she with him. But she realizes that life in suburbia where she has a nightmare ballet sequence is not for her and she goes fleeing back to Olympus. And Mary Martin, originally Marlene Dietrich was supposed to play this role, mm. but she withdrew and so the role was created around Mary Martin's character. And so when you when you hear the recording, you're hearing the conception of Venus, the character of Venus, as she emerged on the stage in New York in 1943. So that's something something very special. There's a, there's this intimate bond between the show and the cast recording. That doesn't mean that other interpreters can't come along and put a new spin on it. But if you want to get inside the character as she appeared on the stage, Mary Martin in this case is the key. Okay, so then if you were a singer who was interpreting a role that, like this uh, who, and you're not Mary Martin, how do you make it your own? I mean, it must be very challenging if, if, if Mary Martin's voice is um, so closely linked to the work. I, th I think that's right. Well, I would advise people to go and listen to the cast album to get a sense of how, get a sense of performance practice. Mm. And you can see that the recording is all of a piece with Vile's conception of the work. In, in a way, the work is synonymous with, with that particular realization. But it's unlikely nowadays that somebody would want to put the show on exactly how it was done. People just don't do this. And some of these works, Lady in the Dark is a particular case in point. This is the work that came just before one Touch of Venus is an incredibly sexist premise mm -hmm. about a magazine editor who is a workaholic because she's really suppressing her female identity. And what she really needs to do, this, her psychiatrist seems to be saying, is find herself a good husband and come to terms with her with this f female persona that she's repressed nowadays this does not sit very well mm -hmm. so something has to change mm -hmm. and and it's perfectly legitimate of course to update these works in all kinds of ways and that is the gateway as it were to a new interpretation wh where you're not the mary martin character but you're something quite other when you're singing the role of venus or or liza elliott this magazine editor in lady in the dark there are as many different ways to interpret a vile song as there are singers out there to sing them. Here are two examples at different ends of the spectrum. We'll listen to two takes of the Yukali tango from Vile's 1930s work Marie Galante. First we'll hear from the cabaret artist Uta Lempa and then from opera singer Teresa Stratas. Say. 
presque au bout du monde Ma barque vagabonde Errant au gré de l'onde Mais conduisit un jour I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. And please download our free weekly podcasts by visiting voicebox-media.org or iTunes. Stanford music professor Stephen Hinton is on hand for a conversation about the vocal music legacy of the composer Kurt Weill. The University of California Press just published Stephen's new book about the musical theatre of Kurt Weill. The book is entitled Weill's Musical Theatre, Stages of Reform. We just heard two performances of the Ukali tango from the composer's stage work Marie Galante, which was written in the 1930s. Stephen, what do you make of the cabaret artist Uta Lemper's interpretations of Weill's music versus opera singer Teresa Strata's approach? Well, I think they're coming from two completely different ghettos. Uh, Uta Lemper, although she's German, I think, has learnt to sing by looking at the example of Broadway. Mm. Whereas Teresa Stratus is crossing over from the world of Mozart opera, where she's done some remarkable things. But you can hear that she doesn't really give up her operatic voice, and, and she doesn't cross over uh, very much to the more popular idiom. That said, shortly before Lenya's death, she essentially passed the mantle to Teresa Stratus. Ah. And she heard Stratus singing some of the unknown vile songs and said, this is it. And she thought it was wonderful. Partly, I think, because it was so different from her. Mm. So she didn't see Stratus as a clone, but Stratus is embracing a side of vile that she wanted to see nurtured and perpetuated. And so Stratus did a number of albums, uh, two albums and a number of live performances. And there was a there was a recording of the Seven Deadly Sins that she did. Yeah, so so she really got into vile for a while. <laughs> now, vile gravitated in and out of the opera and musical theatre world during his career, and few composers have really been able to do this successfully. How did vile manage it? He said that his ambition all along was to write opera, mm. but it was a particular kind of opera opera that moved away from the institution of the opera house and represented a kind of rapprochement with the spoken theater. He saw a particular role for music in the theater. By the time he got to New York, his 
idea of he he called his main work his chef d'oeuvre street scene which is an american opera that mixes wagner puccini gershwin irving berlin you name it there mm-hmm. there are all kinds of influences that turn this into a quintessentially american work if you like a kind of musical melting pot mm-hmm. that he created he saw this as essentially operatic but it was a particular kind of hybrid opera that he was after his last work for the musical theater which was an an adaptation of Alan Payton's novel Cry the Beloved Country title of the work is Lost in the Stars he said contained a lot of un-Broadway-ish operatic music on the one hand and more popular idioms on the other and he thought that he and rightly so I think that he had a a model in Mozart, and in particular in the Magic Flute, mm. which, if you think about it, contains that kind of Papageno sphere of popular music, but it also has the Queen of the Night sphere. Sarastro is the more popular figure. Pamina and uh, Tamino are the more operatic sides, and, and Mozart mixes these in very interesting and in, in some ways symbolic fashions. And I think this is also what's going on with Weil throughout his career. He sort of took his cue from from Mozart, or the Mozart as he was being promulgated by his teacher Buzzoni, and ran with that model going in all kinds of directions and ending up in Lost in the Stars with a kind of zingspiel on the American stage. So he, he, you're describing him, in effect, as the ultimate crossover artist. And, you know, one of the things that confuses me greatly uh, when I think of Weil is the nomenclature that he and his collaborators use to describe their various works. Yes. You know, you have operas and musical plays and sung ballets and operettas and folk operettas and vaudevilles. There's so many different words um, that are employed. How did the genre in which a work was written affect the types of voices that Vile sought out to perform the roles? Yeah, so indeed he was a crossover in a way. All of these labels were inadequate to the task of describing what What, he wanted to do, which is sort of sui generis in in a sense. That was what he was uh, really after. It was -hmm. was something that was in between. Mm -hmm. So to what extent does a singer's musical background matter when it comes to suitability for performing these roles well, given that he's going for this well i think it matters i think it, i think it matters a lot because you have to go back you have to look at the parts and there are some which were written for people who had operatic abilities and others that weren't so within lost in the stars for example you have the principal character stephen who comes straight from the novel the priest who his role was conceived for Todd Duncan, mm-hmm. who played in Porgy and Bess, in Gershwin's yeah. uh, folk opera. Yeah, lovely baritone. It's a, it's, it's a very rich, low voice. Um, Vile actually wanted to work with Paul Robeson <laughs> oh. as well, so an, another I- iconic figure. So if you're going to put on Lost in the Stars, you need somebody who who is Todd Duncan-esque in order to manage that part. Or, But there are other more popular voice parts in there. In street scene, same goes. You can have a Broadway performer doing some of the side characters, but f- for the main character, Anna, you really need a, an operatic soprano. 
Well, it's clear that Vile's music demands performers who can both sing and act, yes. um, regardless of what musical background they come from. And of course, some of the roles require dancing skills too. Yes. But is it better, do you think, Stephen, to be a singer who can act or an actor who can sing when it comes to staging Vile's works? It, it really depends on the piece. I think for the Three Penny Opera, it would be rather odd to populate that with opera singers mm -hmm. and to have them to try to act and do all that dialogue. Uh -huh. Whereas if in Mahogany, I think it's imperative to find opera singers. But they also have to do some acting, but mo most of the theatrical business happens via music. But there are so many of these pieces which are like the Mozartian Zingspiel, where you have a lot of dialogue. And if you are going to pull off that dialogue and have the characters really be convincing in the way that they deliver their spoken lines as opposed to their sung lines, then you really want somebody with significant acting talent. Well, let's hear now from a great singing actress, Gertrude Lawrence, and an equally great acting singer, Dawn Upshaw. Here's the saga of Jenny from Viles' 1941 musical, Lady in the Dark. And Jenny points a moral with which we cannot quarrel as you will find. Jenny made her mind up when she Herself was going to trim the Christmas tree. Christmas Eve, she lit the candles, threw the tapers away. Little Jenny was an orphan on Christmas Day. Jenny made her mind up when she was twelve that into foreign languages she would delve. But at seventeen to Vassar, it was quite a blow. And in twenty-seven languages, she couldn't say no. Poor Jenny. Bright as a penny, her equal would be hard to find. To Jenny, I'm beholden, her heart was big and golden, but she wouldn't make up her mind. Jenny made her mind up at 22 to get herself a husband, what's the thing to do? She got herself all dolled up in her sands and furs And she got herself a husband, but he wasn't hers you're listening to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast via the Voicebox website at voicebox-media.org and also on iTunes under KALW Voicebox. Stephen Hinton, a Stanford University music scholar specialising in the German composer Kurt Weil, is here with me for a discussion about Weil's vocal music artistry. We just heard two fantastic interpreters of a hit track from Weil's 1941 musical Lady in the Dark, The Saga of Jenny. Stephen, love to hear your thoughts about the performances we just heard from Gertrude Lawrence and Dawn Upshaw, who we might consider respectively as an actor who can sing and then a singer who can act. So Gertrude Lawrence was the original Liza Elliott, and she really embodies that role. But the role is one where there's an absolute strict separation between speaking and singing. There are portions which are in the real world when she's in the analyst's office and with her co-workers where it's all acting. And mm. Gertrude Lawrence was a, a great actress. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine Dawn Upshaw really wanting to do that kind of performance. And then there are the, the fantasy portions where she's talking about her, her dreams and Vile said he created three little one-act operas. And it's all singing. 
Mm-hmm. And so Gertrude can really do both of those. The Dawn Upshaw recording is fascinating. I think she's one of the most successful crossover singers mm-hmm. around that she has done phenomenal work as an operatic singer in incredible range, Handel, Mozart, and later repertory. But she also has a very light touch when it comes to doing the Broadway repertory. Mm-hmm. What she seems to be doing here, though, is taking the saga of Jenny even further down the path of jazz music into the world of these, what they're called, standards. Mm. And this is a fascinating aspect of Vile's reception that he not only appropriated aspects of jazz in thinking about his music, in thinking about this mixture of the classical and the popular jazz played an enormous role. But in the reception of his music, some of those songs themselves became jazz standards. And here we can hear this jazz bass playing the accompaniment as in, in a very authentic uh, jazz manner, much more authentic jazz manner than, than the, 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 the strange hybrid, which is Viles recording. And then these standards, in turn, are not only sung, but they become performed by instrumentalists. And there's a, a whole host of recordings of vile songs. My Ship, also from Lady in the Dark. Many, many other songs of his, which are performed by instrumentalists. September song from Knickerbocker Holiday. There's an incredible performance by Art Tatum, mm-hmm. for example. Very elaborate, pian- virtuosic piano rendition of that piece where... Files tune is used the basis as the basis for jazz improvisation. So, would you say it's a combination of uh, Lotta Lenya pushing for it, and then also the fact that you had all this music um, turned into sheet music and, and spread around that kind of helped to disseminate Val's work to a mass audience, or are there other yeah, factors? The, the sheet music is absolutely key. Not a single full score of his musical theatre works was published in his lifetime. Oh. But lots and lots of sheet music quite a lot of which you can find actually on eBay. Wow. <laughs> and was that common for, for composers in his no, day or was it unusual? No, it, wasn't, it wasn't common for so-called serious classically trained composers, but from the, not from the outset, but as soon as this element of popular music entered his work and he composed pieces, we come back to the Alabama song, mm. which is such a key moment in his output because of Lenya, of course, but also because it was the first piece of his that was issued as a separate piece of sheet music. And if his publisher didn't work hard to disseminate his music as sheet music, he would get very frustrated. So he was on the one hand trying to protect his works and their integrity. He insisted on his own instrumentation being performed in the theater. But when it came to performance outside the theater, he was really pushing for the practice of sheet music dissemination and popular appropriation of his songs. And so many of those songs have become so popular and performed by people who aren't uh, stage actors, uh, different kinds of rock bands and and variety of musicians as a result. They really have. And I've been working on Vile for many years. And when people ask me, what are you working on? And I say on Kurt Vile. A lot of people don't know Kurt Vile and then I say well you probably have heard of Kurt Vile and I'll say something like Three Penny Opera and a lot of people say oh yes mm-hmm. Kurt Vile or they'll draw a blank and say Three Penny Opera hmm, don't think so and I say well Mac the Knife they say oh of course so 
he's somebody whose posthumous reputation is such that he's so popular that his identity as the composer has been eclipsed. Exactly, which is uh, so it's so true. It's where we the thought that we had at the at the start of the show and and uh, it's absolutely palpable with, with his songs. Um, I thought we could sit back now and enjoy the vocal talents of several singers that we love interpreting the songs of Kurt Weill in their own distinctive ways. First of all, we'll have Todd Duncan and then Theo Blechman and then the Young Gods and then the Doors and finally Dee Dee Bridgewater. Before Lord God made the sea and the land He held all the stars in the palm of his hand And they ran through his fingers like grains of sand And one little star fell alone the Lord God hunted through the wide night air for the little dark star. Bill's Ballhaus in Bilbao, 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 war das schönste auf dem ganzen Kontinent. Dort gab's für einen Dollar Krach und Wonne, Krach und Wonne, Krach und Wonne. Und was die Welt ja eingenennt. Aber wenn sie da hereingekommen wären, ich weiß ja nicht, ob ihnen sowas gerade gefällt. Ach, Brandylachen waren, wo man saß. Auf dem Tanzboden wuchs das Gras. Und der rote Mond schien durch das Dach. Eine Musik gab's da, man konnte sich beschweren für sein Geld. Joe, mach die Musik von damals Exato den weisen Salomo, ihr wisst, was aus ihm wird. Der Mann war alles sonnenklar, er verfluchte die Stunde seiner Geburt und sah, dass alles eitel war. Er sagt den kühnen Cäsar. Oh, 
This is Voicebox. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. We're exploring the vocal music legacy of the 20th century German composer Kurt Weill with Professor Stephen Hinton of Stanford University. We just heard a set of clips from assorted Weill songs performed by some of our favourite interpreters of the composer's music. The performances we heard in order were those of Duncan Todd, Theo Blechmann, The Young Gods, The Doors and Dee Dee Bridgewater. For more detailed information about the playlist, please check out the Voicebox website at Voicebox voicebox-media.org. Stephen, what, in your opinion, are the ingredients of a great interpretation of a song by Kurt Weill? In other words, what does a vocalist need to have in order to make the music really sing? That's a great question because, as, as we've been discussing, the oeuvre is really diverse. And so it's hard to come up with a recipe. It really depends on the piece, really pen, depends on the work, but I think they need to get inside the melodic contours and have a feel for that. They need to appreciate how the contours relate to the accompaniment, which is often quite, quite different. And they also need to listen to how the music relates to the text. This was a composer who worked with a whole range of authors from Bertolt Brecht at one end to Maxwell Anderson at the other, Ira Gershwin, Paul Green, many, many authors, lots of different texts, lots of different worlds of expression. So in a sense, the, the singer has to be able to inhabit that world, and they can inhabit that world in different ways. But I think all of the ones that we've heard today, in, in their own way, find their way into, into the world of Kurt Weill's music. Well, we're just about out of time for this week. A hearty thank you to this evening's special guest, music scholar Stephen Hinton of Stanford University for joining me today. Stephen, it's been lovely chatting with you. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Chloe. Thank you for having me here. Stephen's new book, Viles Musical Theatre, is available online via the University of California Press website and Amazon.com. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Check out our free weekly podcast on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org and also visit our homepage to mull over and respond to the question of the week. We love to know what you think of us, so please do friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and you can write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. I'll play us out with an amazing old recording of the song we started the show out with, Mac the Knife. Here's Bertolt Brecht with Theo McEbben and his jazz orchestra. Have a songful week. Er hat Zähne und die trägt er im Gesicht. Und Mekiser hat ein Messer, doch das Messer sieht man nicht an dem schönen...